Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind. Along the walls, shelves stocked with proof. And all around, the clutter of clues. Here's a photograph of a corpse, pasted onto the page of a moldering, leather-bound album. Here, a teetering stack of newspapers tied with twine. Oh, and this, this is very good. A detective's notebook. It smells like tobacco. And look, over here on this oak stand, a medieval manuscript. Writing so tiny, it looks like an army of ants. And down, hidden, oh, I see it rolled under the shelf. A glass bottle, blue as indigo. This place stores the facts that matter and matters of fact. It's all that stands between reasonable doubt and the chaos of uncertainty. It lies in a time between now and then. Welcome to The Last Archive, a place I like to go to figure out how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why it seems sometimes lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm the historian Jill Lepore. Step through the door to an unfinished grave. The body was found face down early in the morning of May 4th, 1919. A rainy morning, a Sunday in springtime, a century ago, in a little park in the center of Barry, Vermont, a quarry town known as the Granite City. Young Harold Jackson was out for a walk before breakfast when he came across the body and rushed off to find a policeman. 
Officer, there's a naked dead woman in a vacant lot near the Basel Hotel. Dead woman, you say? The body lay, pale and animal, against the dark, wet grass. A kill, like something hunted, a fox in a trap. Prey, like something caught, a fish on a hook. Tied up, like something about to be roasted, a bird on a spit. Her hands were tied behind her back, her mouth was gagged, her neck was garroted. She was naked, stripped of everything but her gray-blue silk stockings, her laced leather shoes, her yellow kid gloves. Her clothes lay rumpled in a pile. Her eyeglasses were caught in her hair. The policeman hurried toward the body. A crowd began to gather. People on their way to church, wearing their Sunday hats and bonnets, stopped and stared as if they were spur-of-the-moment mourners. Make way! How could you such a thing? Why do all murder mysteries start this way? Fiction, nonfiction, true crime, pulp fiction, magazines, movies, podcasts. It doesn't matter where you come across them. A dead woman, a beautiful woman, a young woman, killed viciously, found naked, exposed. Dead and doubly silent. Not just killed, but gagged. And we stare and stare and stare. This murder really happened. The recordings from the scene we reenacted ourselves. But everything here really happened. Who was she? Who killed her? Good questions. I want to answer those questions. But I've also got bigger questions. About the history of knowledge and evidence. Questions important to ask in our muddle-headed fake news post-truth world. On this season of The Last Archive, I'm going to try to solve a crazy big whodunit. Who killed truth? I love nothing more than an investigation, but you have to have a plan. The place to start looking for answers to really big questions is with something small. If you want to understand biology, you start with a cell, or not even a cell, a chromosome, or not even a chromosome, a nucleotide. History works the same way. To answer a question about the history of evidence, you don't start with philosophy. You start with a single mystery on a particular day And not even that, but with one tiny clue. Gray-blue silk stockings, say, or a white linen handkerchief. Just the kind of things you can find in the last archive. The dead body that a crowd had gathered around in Barrie, Vermont, on a Sunday morning in 1919... Everyone wanted to turn it, turn her, into a set of facts, a body of evidence. They came by ones and twos. The chief of police, the deputy chief, the attorney general, two doctors, a reporter, and a photographer. The photograph was how I came across this case. I found it in an archive. I held it in my hands. It made my head hurt. It broke my heart. It had been pasted into a leather-bound album, pasted almost lovingly, an ancient photo album of murdered bodies. Nearly all of them were women. 
But this photograph was somehow the worst, the saddest, the cruelest. I saw that photograph, and I needed to know more, a lot more. Silenced women bother me. They really bother me. I needed to know who she was and what happened to her. I wanted to hear her speak. There are methods when you conduct a historical investigation. Steps. Here's what I like to do. I like to start with the easy stuff. Find out first what everyone knew about whatever it is you're interested in. Then think about all the stuff that was so obvious to people that they didn't even notice it at the time. They took it for granted and didn't quite see it anymore. Then find out the stuff that only a few people knew. And then finally, and this is the best part and it only happens if you're doing your work right, find out the stuff that no one knew. Step one, how do you find out what everyone knew in Barry, Vermont in 1919? The newspaper. So I went to the library and dug up old issues of this town's main paper, the Barry Daily Times. One thing everyone knew, there'd been a lot of death in Barry in the last year. The pandemic, influenza, Spanish flu. It had hit Barry very hard, partly because the men who worked in the quarry for years had very weak lungs. Schools had closed for months, and about the only public events being held were funerals. The misery had only just begun to end. The quarantine had only been lifted a few months before this body was found, murdered. More senseless death. Anyway, I dug up the Barry paper. When I read a newspaper like that, I can pretty much hear the reporter talking to me in my head, and just the way reporters talked then, or at least the way I imagine it. I listen for what's weird. And here's what's weird. Starting with this very first story, the reporter for the Barry Daily Times crammed in the details. Detail after detail after detail. Barry Daily Times, Monday, May 5th, 1919. Woman was strangled and naked body left in garden off Main Street. Between the fence and the body was a small patch of tall grass which did not appear to be trampled, but the dirt between the body and the hat on a northerly line seemed to have been disturbed slightly as if it might have been done by dragging some object, while the grass still further northerly and under a loose wire fence was somewhat flattened as if by the trampling of feet or by the dragging of an object over or through the fence. He was writing a style of true crime that's familiar now, so familiar that it sounds old-fashioned. But back then it was new. It had really only begun a few decades earlier in the 1880s. The public wanted details, and newspapers gave them every last clue, as if readers, too, might solve the murder. Coming within the perspective of the camera were the woman's clothing partly under the body, her hat lying some eight feet away and perhaps not discernible in the picture, a pocketbook lying about 18 feet on the opposite side of the body from the hat, and her gold watch, the latter of which had in the meantime been picked up. The watch was still running. The watch was still running, and it was inscribed with three initials, L-P-C. This, by the end of the day, led the police to her name, Lucina Corser Bradwell. Her maiden name was Lucina Phillips Corser, LPC. 29, 110 pounds, 5 foot 3. Her husband, Harry Bradwell, was a carpenter. They had three children, 
Doris, eight, Hildred, seven, and Wendell, who was only five. Finally, hours after the body was found, a horse hitched to a wagon carried her to an undertaker's. That afternoon, two doctors drove to the undertaker's to conduct an autopsy. The word autopsy, auto plus opsy, means something you see with your own eyes, the evidence of your senses. This, too, was mostly new, pathologists gathering evidence. In conducting that autopsy in Vermont, they were trying to get the dead body to speak. In a century on, that's what I'm doing. Historians are coroners, too. A lot of things, a lot more things than murders, used to be mysteries. A mystery, for centuries, meant what God knows, and we do not, but must believe. The mystery of the origins of life, the mystery of what happens to you after you die. After a while, the mystery began yielding to the fact as the elemental unit of knowledge, as if knowledge is made up of facts the way a body is made up of atoms or electricity is made up of electrons. It took a while. This process was slow. But people eventually got fact-mad. They believed they had discovered a universe of truth. You can see that even in how people understood the causes of death. Centuries ago, starting in the late 1500s, during the Age of Mystery, authorities began writing up a special document for every death, something called a Bill of Mortality. On a Bill of Mortality, you could be said to have died of lots of different things. But all of them, to me, have a kind of poetry. Of breach, of blasted, of cramp, of itch, of lethargy, of frighted, or of grief. I love that list. People do die of these things, of fright, grief, and misery. The way we think now about death comes not from the ancient bills of mortality from the age of mystery, but from the modern death certificate, from the age of facts. The pathologist who examined Lucina Broadwell's body in 1919, he was looking for a cause of death, a fact. He found bruises on her hips and thighs, and he also found semen. And then the medical examiner used all this evidence to fill out a certificate of death. He had a list to choose from, taken from the International List of Causes of Death. You could die of all sorts of things on that list. But unfortunately, there's no poetry to it. Number 182, homicide by firearms. 183, homicide by cutting or piercing instruments. In the age of mystery, if I had been writing Lucina Broadwell's Bill of Mortality, I'd have written down two things she died of. Of being savaged and of terror. But instead, the medical examiner wrote something else on her death certificate. Number 184, homicide by strangulation. Her throat had been crushed. But who killed Lucina Broadwell? Most people in Barry figured her husband Harry had done it. He'd been arrested before for beating her. He once cut her with a razor. But Harry had an alibi. He'd been out drinking. And he had some witnesses, too, at least for part of the night. He'd been at a dance, and then he knocked on a friend's door late at night and gotten him to make him an egg sandwich. The chief suspect had an alibi, and the police had no other suspects. They were stumped. So they made a decision. What they needed was a detective, a private detective. This 
After all, was the golden age of detective fiction, the age of Hercule Poirot and Charlie Chan and Lord Peter Whimsey. In Barry, though, they didn't have any private detectives. But they knew one, so they put in a call to Boston. To the offices of James R. Wood. Wood Detective Agency, James R. Wood Jr. speaking. This agency with correspondents in all parts of the world is prepared to undertake all legitimate detective business for corporations, companies, or individuals, male and female operatives furnished. James R. Wood was head of the first detective agency in New England. It had been founded by his father in 1879, eight years before the fictional Sherlock Holmes solved his first mystery. Wood wore a thin mustache, owl's eye spectacles, and an impeccably knotted tie. He smoked a pipe. I mean, of course he smoked a pipe. His specialty was rural murder, like the Broadwell case. It was a complete mystery which had baffled the authorities. He took the sleeper train up from Boston, smoking his pipe, pondering the evidence. Wood was 39 at the time, and he was also his own Watson. He wrote chronicles of his cases. James R. Wood's detective notebook? That's the gold mine. Most of the stuff you're going to hear from him, the stuff comes straight out of the pages of his notebook. The case I'm about to relate to you has been considered throughout New England as one of the strongest circumstantial cases ever tried. James R. Wood was not a modest man, but his account of the case is pretty thorough. He got to town just before Lucina Broadwell was to be buried, days after the murder. He went first to the Broadwell house and inspected the body. He interviewed Harry Broadwell, and then he wrote four words in his notebook. Satisfied the husband innocent. Okay, but why? Harry would seem to have been the most likely suspect, and even though he had an alibi, it was hardly airtight, especially since nobody knew exactly when in the night his wife had been murdered. That was one of the first things that didn't quite make sense to me when I started reading about this case, that is, reading James Wood's account, after first seeing the photograph of Lucina Broadwell's dead body. But Wood, like the Barry police, just wasn't interested in Harry Broadwell, even though they knew that he had beaten his wife. A century ago, men could hit their wives and even rape them without much of any consequence. So Wood dismissed the idea of Harry as a suspect. Instead, he started looking for a very particular kind of fact. He started looking for a clue. A clue used to mean a ball of yarn or thread. The word kept that meaning in English for hundreds of years. And then people started using the word clue to describe the yarn you'd use if you were stuck in a maze. If you enter a maze, a really good idea is to unravel a ball of yarn to mark your way so that you can find your way back out. So clue started to mean a thing you would use to find your way out of a maze. And here's another reason we use the word clue this way. A lot of murder victims are women, and their clothes are often torn. So there were lots of clues at the scenes of crimes Actual, not figurative, threads trailing from torn items of women's clothing. Wood wrote about this stuff in his notes on Lucina Broadwell. Tied around her neck was her torn shirtwaist, with the knots in the shirtwaist secured by a man's handkerchief with a sailor's knot. After a while, clues started to mean anything you could find at the scene of a crime. 
and follow to solve a mystery. But still, the best clues tended to be bits of clothes. During the day, we had ascertained that the handkerchief belonged to Eddie Barrow. We identified it by the laundry mark. A man's handkerchief with a laundry mark on it. That is a pretty good clue. It led to a man named Eddie Barrow, a drifter. Woods operatives tracked him down. Barrow had lent his handkerchief to someone else, he said. A fellow by the name of George Long, a lanky, wiry Canadian. But what did George Long have to do with Lucina Broadwell? Wood thought he knew. Mr. Broadwell was suspicious that his wife was sporty. Sporty meant that you slept around. They had been considerable family trouble, and someone had told Broadwell that they had seen his wife coming out of the Parker house at the lower end of Main Street on more than one occasion. Aha! Another big clue for James Wood. Mrs. Parker's house was sort of the town brothel. She'd host men who came to town to work in the quarries. She'd match them up with sporty women from Barrie, including Lucina Broadwell, and a friend of hers named Grace Grimes. Wood followed his trail of clues all the way to Grace Grimes' house, where she told him that Lucina had written her a letter on the very day she died. In the first part of the letter, Mrs. Broadwell explained about having been down to Mrs. Parker's house several times, of having met a lodger there by the name of George, that George and she had been quite friendly, that George talked about buying an automobile, that George had asked her to go to California with him, that she, Mrs. Broadwell, had decided that George was full of hot air, that he was no good, and that she was not going to see him again. That the second part of the letter, written on Saturday, read, I've received a call from Mrs. Parker, and she wants me to come down tonight and meet George again. Most everything our actors say in this podcast is taken from historical documents. We know they said this stuff. But this little bit of Lucina Broadwell, this is not that. This is what James Wood wrote down from what Grace Grimes told him, that she remembered from a letter Lucina Broadwell had written to her that Grimes had destroyed. I'm sick and tired of the whole bunch. However, I'll go down tonight and I'll tell Mrs. Parker what I think of her and I'll ditch George as I know he is full of hot air and has no money and is a bluff. Wood believed he had found his man. George Long was a drifter in love and Lucina Broadwell had lost patience with him. He'd been fun for a while, but she planned to break up with him because he was full of hot air and he was a bluff, a liar. With this new insight into the mystery of Broadwell's murder, Wood headed back to Vermont. It all started with a laundry mark on that white handkerchief. Wood loved this clue. He loved it so much that he titled his account of the case, The Clue of the White Handkerchief. Wood knew he was now near the end of the maze. On Sunday morning, May 11th, he invited George Long to meet him at the Hotel Barry, a big, elegant Victorian. And then he and the deputy sheriff kept Long at that hotel questioning him for four days. They submitted him to an ordeal, a very ancient sort of ordeal. In the age of mystery, no one could know, could truly know, the guilt of another person. Only God could know. The point of a trial was to find a way for God to reveal someone's guilt. These tests were called trials by ordeal. One kind was the ordeal of the corpse, where you'd be found guilty if the murdered corpse bled when you touched it. The Pope banned trial by ordeal in the year 1215. 
But that year, 1215, something else happened. In Magna Carta, the King of England established the right to a trial by jury. So just hold on and think about that for a minute. The end of trial by ordeal and the beginning of trial by jury took judgment out of the hands of God and placed it into the hands of men. But still, the age of mystery lingered. I've come across American cases from as late as 1894, where the suspects were subjected to the ordeal of the corpse, told to approach a murdered body to see if it would bleed again. And something very much like that happened in that hotel room in Barrie, Vermont, in 1919, when Detective James R. Wood questioned his suspect, George Long. In that hotel room, Wood tried for hours at a time to get Long to confess. Long admitted to knowing Lucina Broadwell, and even having dinner with her on the night of her death in Mrs. Parker's house. He admitted, too, that he'd had sex with her that night, but he insisted he hadn't killed her. And then, desperate for evidence, Wood had submitted Long to a series of what I think you can fairly call ordeals, those old tests of truth from the age of mystery. One day, Wood handed Long two pieces of rope, and he asked him to tie them together. Long, you've been lying to me. I want you to tell me the truth about it. Tie a square knot. A square knot is about the only knot I know how to tie. A square knot happened to be the type of knot the murderer had used to tie up Lucina Broadwell. Could it be a clue? Later, Wood took out the photographs of Lucina Broadwell's dead body and made Long look at them, subjecting him to a kind of ordeal of the photograph. While Long looked at the photographs, Wood opened a box containing the clothes that had been found next to the body. And then carefully, one by one, he draped them over the railing at the foot of the brass bed in the hotel room. After Long finished looking at the photographs, he got out of his chair and stepped over to the bed rail to look at the clothes and made as if we were about to pick them up. Suddenly, there in that hotel turned interrogation room, Wood interrupted him. Look out, George. You get your hands all covered with blood. There isn't a goddamn bit of blood on these clothes. Wood figured he'd nailed him. Lucina Broadwell had been strangled. She hadn't bled. But if George Long hadn't been there, if he wasn't the murderer, how did he know there wouldn't be blood on those clothes? Like I said, Wood questioned Long for days. The ordeal of the rope. The ordeal of the photograph. The ordeal of the clothes. And then, at the end of those four days, the police charged George Long with first-degree murder. This case was going to a trial by jury. It began on a Friday in autumn, the leaves falling to the ground, rustling in the wind, at the Washington County Courthouse in Montpelier, Vermont. The courthouse was packed with spectators, and there were seven reporters there too, including four from big city papers in Boston. The story was front-page news all over New England. George Long sat next to his lawyer, who planned to question Harry Broadwell's alibi and to point out that it was Broadwell, not Long, who had a motive to kill Lucina Broadwell. The prosecution had a difficult case to make. After all, there were no witnesses to the crime. But the prosecution hoped to prove that Long had raped Lucina Broadwell and then strangled her. Quite why was harder to say. And when Long took the stand, he denied everything, including 
everything he'd told James Wood in that hotel room. You knew Mrs. Broadwell, didn't you? No, I didn't. You say you never spoke with Mrs. Broadwell? No, sir. It went on like this. Then, ten days into the trial, the prosecution did something really interesting. The court now calls to the stand James Wood Jr. Long had just testified under oath that he'd never met Lucina Broadwell. Ah, perfect, the prosecution must have thought. We've caught him lying. Because when Wood had questioned him, Long had admitted not only that he knew Broadwell, but that he'd had dinner with her, even that he'd had sex with her on the night of the murder. The prosecution could have asked Wood to tell the jury what Long had said, but it wanted something better. It wanted the court to admit as evidence the entire transcript of Wood's interrogation. To this scheme, Long's lawyer objected. He said that Wood and the deputy sheriff had essentially kept Long as their prisoner for four days and four long nights in the Hotel Barry, not arresting him, but just grilling him, which, of course, was against the law. Well, all that time from Sunday until the next Thursday, Mr. Long was kept in close confinement up there in that hotel by you or some other officers, wasn't he? No, sir. What, sir? No, sir. You were pumping him. You or some of your associates all the time? No, sir. Weren't you? No, sir. Didn't you wake him up in the middle of the night out of a sound sleep and pump him about this murder? I did not. Do you know who did? No, sir. Long's lawyer's cross-examination relied on a bigger point about evidence. There are rules. They're old, they change all the time, but there are rules. And the prosecution had broken a bunch of them, mainly because of the circumstances under which Wood had questioned Long. Another judge might have disallowed as evidence the transcript of James Wood's interrogation of George Long. But this judge allowed it. And so, the entire transcript of Wood's interrogation was read to the jury so that the jury could imagine that they, too, were sitting in that room in the Hotel Barry, watching Wood give Long the third degree. Long's lawyer, in his closing argument, pleaded with the jury to ignore all of it. I say and submit to you, gentlemen, that under the evidence there must be a doubt. But the prosecution said the case was open and shut. And the prosecutor, in his closing argument, was very good. He talked about the rope of evidence that tied this case together. And as he walked around the courtroom, he held in his hands a rope, which he tied and untied, tied and untied, as if he had George Long all roped up. The jury deliberated for less than a day. Howdy, fun. On the charge of second-degree murder, we find the defendant guilty as charged. All rise. Court is adjourned. The judge sentenced Long to life in prison, and Barry Vermont declared, mystery solved, facts won the day. But to me, either something was missing or else something had gone terribly wrong. Long might have done it, sure. But on what evidence had the jury actually convicted him? I couldn't see it. Somewhere along the line, I must have missed something, some stray fact, some clue. Here's what you do when your investigation reaches a dead end. You do it all over again. So I went back, and I looked at that super creepy photograph again, the one where Lucina Broadwell looks like a hunted animal, tied, and about to be roasted on a spit. And then I looked at the newspaper stories again, 
and I read Wood's notes again. And then I noticed something I hadn't noticed before. I noticed that when Wood first took the stand, the prosecution read a statement into the record. But in the newspaper, the contents of that statement just got a passing mention. You'd think it would have been summarized in full by that Barry Daily Times reporter, poured over by the reporter who had been so eager to report every last fact gathered at the scene of the crime. But nope, he had only this to say. Much of the statement has to do with facts that cannot appear in print. What? Why? What facts were unprintable? Then I figured whatever the newspaper didn't print might still survive in the original trial transcripts. Those would be stored far away, deep in Vermont's state archives. There should be more cows. The landscape would be very enhanced by the little cows. Well, it's not a visual medium. You can just say there are cows. Okay, yeah. there are cows. <laughs> it's mostly cows out here. <laughs> That's my son. Since this is a show about truth, I should just state for the record, there were no cows in sight. So just ignore my son and ignore me. And ignore, too, my producer, Ben. God, Look I can't see the archive. Holstein's the on the right. Jersey's on the left. <laughs> <laughs> they have, have some heirloom island cows. Oh, it must be that. Did I just pass yeah, the right. Okay. Wow. Sorry, I was very busy. I was distracted by the cows. Look at that brown cow right there. Oh, don't hit that one. The trial records were waiting for us in a low-slung building on the side of Route 2 in Montpelier. Uh, I've got some of the boxes pulled. A um, few of them have changed their box numbers because we reprocessed them. So okay. they should be all set for you to take a look at. That's reference archivist Marisa Dobrik, and she'd pulled out a big box full of George Long's trial record bound in giant books. The record runs to more than 1,200 pages. So we can kind of get a whole piece of the puzzle this way. The yeah. way I see it is yeah. when you're doing a court case, you're looking at pieces of a puzzle. Yeah. I drive past her murder scene every day Do on my you? way home. Really? <laughs> I think of her just about every day. The trial records had actually been misfiled and had been lost for a very long time until this amazing archivist, Gregory Sanford, the man who'd hired Marisa, found them after I'd emailed him with a few questions. There's almost nothing as thrilling as finding something you've been looking for for a really long time. So you open that one box and all of a sudden there are, what, two or three volumes and saying, wow, this is it. Anybody should research at any point because there's that moment of discovery that it's like, wow, you know, this is cool. And it is cool. It's super cool. But it takes a long time to read through trial transcripts. And I noticed there was a lot in them that hadn't made it into the Barry Daily Times. Okay, first thing to report, there was so much hanky-panky going on in this little granite city, especially at Mrs. Parker's house, that brothel where George Long had met Lucina Broadwell. A great many of the hundred witnesses who marched to the stand during the trial were asked about the goings-on at Mrs. Parker's house. That stuff was scandalous, but it wasn't entirely unprintable. Hundreds of pages into the trial transcript, I finally found the part of the testimony that the Barry Daily Times could not print. Something that George Long had told James Wood about the night of Lucina Broadwell's death. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. And we was in the room then a while and came out. Were you intimate with her there? Uh, yeah. But before becoming intimate, did she get any money from you? No, sir. Did she remove her clothes? Her skirt. Just her skirt? Yeah, just her skirt. And a hat? 
Yeah, and her hat and gloves. And gloves. Now, on that occasion when you were intimate with her, is that the occasion you told me about when she used some sort of uh, preventative? She used a blue tablet. I have a bottle in my room over there now. I can't tell the name of the tablet, but uh, there's a blue wash that comes in an oblong bottle or a three-cornered bottle. Those blue tablets or the blue liquid in that oblong bottle, that must have been a concoction made from a plant called blue cohosh, a perennial with blueberries. It was the sort of thing you'd take before birth control was legal. It was advertised as aiding menstruation. This part of the interrogation transcript was unprintable because legally it was obscene. That is, it violated the terms of the 1873 Comstock Act, a federal law that prohibited the printing of any information relating to, among other things, the prevention of conception or for causing unlawful abortion. The newspapers could say that Lucina Broadwell's stomach had veal and bread in it when they opened her up. They could talk about the bruises on her thighs, but they couldn't mention her alleged use of birth control. That was illegal. Is that something you gave her? Yes, I had them sitting there in the dresser, and I had them in my pocket that night. None of the evidence used to convict George Long had ever been very good. But in the end, it hadn't really mattered. George Long had provided a married woman and mother of three with birth control in order to have sex with her without fear of pregnancy and discovery by her husband. And then he lied about it. These unprintable facts were reason enough for the jurors, a jury of 12 men, to convict. That evidence cinched the case. Not the clue of the white handkerchief, but the clue of the blue bottle. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
Up in Montpelier in the state archives, some people think Lucina Broadwell's spirit has never found rest. Barry's got a feeling to it. It's, it's weighted with history. And I mean, I think that sometimes you can feel that. That's Marisa Dobrik again, reference archivist for the state of Vermont. All I can say, honestly, is I feel like she haunts it. I'm not sure I believe in ghosts myself, but I find her story so haunting that every day I drive past it, I don't think any good answers were given. I think she's still there. I do. I, I don't think they found him. In the parking lot. That place? I mean, you can go there. You can go to the parking lot. Lucina Broadwell has been dead and buried for a hundred years. I never really got her to speak. But I did want, I guess, to pay my respects. I decided to go find that unfinished grave, the place where she'd been first found, naked, bound, and gagged. So my producer Ben and my son Simon and I piled into my Subaru and headed 20 minutes south on Vermont 62 to Barrie, to the scene of the crime. Like Marisa said, there's a parking lot there now. We brought with us a stack of photographs, that terrible photograph of Lucina Broadwell's corpse, and then all the other forensic photographs, shots of the scene. It looks really different there now, so it took a lot of looking to find the exact spot. There's like the garden, then there's a road, yeah, then right, there's right. a fence. Here's this street right here, and then there's a garden, a little ways, a road, and then this curb, and then the fence yeah. again. So that parking lot really is the former garden then. Yeah. We're pretty sure that we found the spot. And so we just stood there. A moment of silence. For her. Standing there during that long moment of silence, my mind wandered. Jurors are known as finders of facts. But for a very long time, women couldn't serve on juries. Only men, then, could decide what was true and what wasn't true. Who killed truth? Standing there in the spot where James R. Wood had once stood, I thought about his sister, Maud Wood Park. She hadn't joined the family business, the Wood Detective Agency. Instead, in 1919, the year Lucina Broadwell was murdered, Maud Wood Park, who was arguably the most influential woman in American politics, was leading the fight for women's suffrage as a congressional lobbyist in Washington. And she hadn't stopped after women finally got the right to vote with the 19th Amendment. After its ratification in 1920, women like Maud Wood Park went on to fight for the right of women to serve on juries. That fight, state by state, took a really long time. In Vermont, women didn't get to serve on juries to decide on matters of fact until 1943. That same year, Maud Wood Park started collecting documents chronicling women's history. Like me, she couldn't stand the idea of silenced women. So she created her own archive, an archive of women's history, the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America. Lately, libraries like that, archives, have been busy digitizing their records. A few years back, the library that holds the records of the Wood Detective Agency digitized them. They lifted James Wood's notebook and his leather-bound photo album out of boxes and placed them gently in scanners. And then they uploaded them to the Internet. If today you do a Google search for Lucina Broadwell, a photograph of her dead body, pale and animal, 
might float to the surface of the ocean of the internet. That's how most of us find evidence these days. Not by way of mysteries and ordeals, facts and clues, juries and rules, but searches and data. Why does it seem lately as if it's hard to know anything at all? Because of the nature of this search. Lucina Broadwell. Like every other search result, she will have been ripped from her context and stripped bare of her history. She will be faceless and factless. True crime. Here in the last archive, we've got all kinds of records shelved, stacked, filed, sprawling all over the floor. Photographs, ledgers, Facebook posts, fingerprints. This season, we'll be pawing through all this stuff to find out what happened to knowledge and truth, and maybe even what to do about it. Stick around. The door's always unlocked. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadefhafri. Our editor is Julia Barton. And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jason Gambrell is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger-Jones, Jesse Henson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emanuel Parent. The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick and the American Repertory Theater, to Emily Shulman at Harvard Law School, to Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media, and to Alex Allenson and the Bridge Sound and Stage. And at Pushkin, to Heather Fain, Maya Caney, Carly Migliori, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Ruskin-Kutz, and Emily Spector. I'm Jill Lepore. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. 
Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.